Welcome, podcast listeners. Today, we have a fantastic bonus episode for you. We recently published our new book, The Best Investment Writing, Volume 2. The first one was a hit, with Money Week concluding that it should be on every investor's bookshelf. But we made the second volume even better. We expanded it to include 41 hand-selected investment articles written by some of the most respected money managers and investment researchers in the world. We are really proud of it. We also thought it'd be fun to bring on some of the authors and have them read their specific chapter from the book. So that's what you're getting in today's special bonus episode. If you're interested in picking up a copy of The Best Investment Writing Volume 2, head on over to Amazon or our publisher's website, which is Harriman House. Also, know that your purchase will be benefiting charities as all the writer proceeds to go to the charity of the specific author's choosing. So enough from me. Let's get to our guest author takeover with this special bonus episode. Hi, this is Elroy Dimson. I'm the co-founder and the chairman of the Center for Endowment Asset Management, which is a research center and part of Cambridge Judge Business School at the University of Cambridge. What we do is we bring together experts in the area of investing for the long term to conduct research, exchange ideas, and develop new themes that are relevant to people who are looking after long-term pools of assets. I work closely with two colleagues at London Business School, Paul Marsh and Mike Staunton, and I'm going to read the first chapter from the Best Investment Writing Volume 2, The chapter that I've written with my colleagues is called The Evolution of Equity Markets. To understand risk and return, we must examine long periods of history. This is because asset returns and especially equity returns are very volatile. In the Global Investment Returns Yearbook 2018, we document the financial market history of the 20th and 21st centuries to date. The core of the yearbook is a long-run study covering the annual return since 1900 from all the main asset categories in 23 countries and three regions, including a worldwide index. The unrivaled quality and breadth of the underlying data set makes the yearbook the global authority on the long-run performance of stocks, bonds, bills, inflation and currencies. Our new publication extends and brings up to date the key findings from our Princeton University Press book, Triumph of the Optimists. The global database that underpins the yearbook contains annual returns on stocks, bonds, bills, inflation and currencies for 23 countries from 1900 to 2018. The countries comprise the United States and Canada, 10 countries from what is now the euro currency area, Austria, Belgium, Finland, France, Germany, Ireland, Italy, the Netherlands, Portugal and Spain. Six non-Eurozone markets in Europe, Denmark, Norway, Russia, Sweden, Switzerland and the United Kingdom. Four Asia-Pacific markets, Australia, China, Japan and New Zealand. And one African market, South Africa. Together, at the start of 2018, these countries make up 91% of the investable universe for a global investor, based on free float market capitalizations. Our database also includes three regional indexes for equities and bonds denominated in a common currency, here taken as US dollars. These are a 23-country world index, a 22-country world ex-USA index, 
and a 16-country Europe index. The equity indexes are weighted by each country's market capitalization, while the bond indexes are weighted by GDP. All 23 countries experienced market closures at some point, mostly during wartime. In almost all cases, it's possible to bridge these voids and construct a returns history that reflects the experience of investors over the non-trading period. For 21 countries, we therefore have a complete 118-year history of investment returns for which the yearbook presents summary statistics and cross-country analysis as well as detailed information on each individual market. Russia and China, however, are exceptions since their markets were interrupted by long periods of communist rule. The expropriation of Russian assets after 1917 and Chinese assets after 1949 could be regarded as wealth redistribution rather than wealth loss. But investors would not warm to this view. For these countries, we have returns for the pre-communist era and then for the period since these markets reopened in the early 1990s. We assume that shareholders and domestic bondholders in Russia and China suffered total wipeouts in 1917 and 1949, respectively, and we then re-include these countries in the World and Regional Index after their markets reopened in the early 1990s and once reliable market indexes were initiated. Our index series all commence in 1900, and this common start date aids international comparisons. Data availability and quality dictated this choice of start date, and for practical purposes, 1900 was the earliest plausible start date for a comparative international database with broad coverage. Figure 1 in the book, if you're able to access it, shows the relative sizes of world equity markets at our starting date of end 1899, that's in the upper panel of figure 1, and how they changed by end 2017, that's the lower panel. The lower panel shows that the US market dominates its closest rival and today accounts for over 51% of total world equity market value. Japan, at 8.6%, is in second place, ahead of the UK, 6.1%, in third place. France, Germany, China, Canada and Switzerland each represent about 3% of the global market. Australia occupies ninth position with 2.4%. In figure one of our book, nine of the yearbook countries, each representing 2% or more of world market cap, are shown separately, with 14 smaller markets grouped together as, quote, smaller yearbook, unquote. The remaining area of the lower pie chart in our book, labelled not in yearbook, represents countries comprising 9.3% of world capitalization, for which our data does not go all the way back to 1900. Mostly, they are emerging markets. Note that the lower panel of figure one is based on the free float market capitalizations of the countries in the FTSE All World Index, which spans the investable universe for a global investor. Emerging markets represent a higher proportion of the world total when measured using full float weights when investability criteria are relaxed or if indexes are GDP weighted. 
The upper panel of figure one shows the equivalent breakdown at the end 1899 start of the database. The chart shows that at the start of the 20th century, the UK equity market was the largest in the world, accounting for a quarter of world capitalization and dominating even the US market at 15%, Germany at 13% ranked in third place, followed by France, Russia and Austria-Hungary. Non-yearbook countries are again labelled not in yearbook. In total, the dataset covers almost 98% of the global equity markets at the start of 1900. By the end of 2017, our 23 countries still represent some 91% of the investable universe. The volatile investment performance of individual countries raises two important questions. The first relates to survivorship bias. Investors in some countries were lucky, but others suffered financial disaster. If countries in the latter group are omitted, there is a danger of overstating worldwide equity returns. In 2013, we therefore added Russia and China to our database, the two best-known cases of markets that failed to survive. China was a small market at the beginning of the 20th century, and even in the 1940s, but Russia accounted for some 6% of world market capitalization at the end of 1899. The second and opposite source of bias, namely success bias, is even more serious. In 2013, we also added Austria-Hungary, which had a 5% weighting in the end 1899 world index. While Austria-Hungary was not a total investment disaster, it was the worst performing equity market and the second worst performing bond market of our 21 countries with continuous investment histories. Adding Austria, as well as China and Russia, to our database and to the World Index was important in eliminating non-survivorship and unsuccess bias. In 2014, we added another unsuccessful market, Portugal, to our database. Figure 2 shows the evolution of global equity market share for key countries over the last 118 years. Early in the 20th century, the US equity market overtook the UK and has since then been the world's dominant stock market. Although at the end of the 1980s, Japan was very briefly the world's largest market. At its peak at start 1990, Japan accounted for almost 45% of the world index, compared with around 30% for the USA. Subsequently, Japan's weighting fell to just 8%, reflecting its poor relative stock market performance since then. In contrast, the US has regained its dominance and today comprises 51% of total world capitalization. The US is by far the world's best documented capital market. Prior to assembly of our database, the evidence cited on long-run asset returns was almost invariably taken from US markets and was typically treated as being universally applicable. Yet organized trading in marketable securities began in Amsterdam in 1602 and London in 1698, but did not commence in New York until 1792. Since then, the U.S. share of the global stock market has risen from 0 to 51%. This reflects the superior performance of the U.S. economy, a large volume of IPOs, and the substantial returns from U.S. stocks. No other market can rival this long-term accomplishment. 
but this makes it dangerous to generalize from U.S. asset returns since they exhibit success bias. That is why we focus on global investment returns. How should you respond to the fluctuating fortunes of markets from around the world? You may choose to be a a country picker, tilting your portfolio strongly towards countries that you think will outperform over the short and medium term. But you may make the wrong call. Market timing can be dangerous. The safer option is to hold a globally diversified equity portfolio. That is the most important lesson we learn from our detailed study of financial market history. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.